0: Welcome to the Unmachine Yourself podcast, facilitated by Hatch and hosted by me, Rowan van Forst. I'm a futures anthropologist, and in this series, I get to speak with CEOs, managers of big corporates, thought leaders about the future of work and leadership. Have fun. Melanie Reback is an award-winning computer scientist and co-founder of Radically Open Security, the world's 1st nonprofit computer security consultancy company. She's also a former assistant professor of computer science at the Free University and worked in research and management roles at Citrix and ING, amongst others. With her work, she won several awards and prizes, including the TIM Award for most innovative IT leader of the Netherlands. There you go. That was in 2017. And the EU Women Innovators Prize in 2019. And I don't want to skip this fun fact. She also co-founded the Dutch Girl Geek Dinner. In 2008. Well, we have to talk about that probably. Melanie, thank you so much for joining me. We're talking on Zoom today. Hi, nice to be Hi. here. And um, before I dive into all questions about the future and how you see the future of work and leadership, uh, how you see the future of uh, computer security, maybe, I want to just ask an icebreaker question namely, what did you want to be when you were a child?
1: um i think i had no idea (laughs) i think i uh went back and forth between a lot of different options i think uh there was a period of time where i wanted to be an astronaut i think there was a period of time where i wanted to be a paratrooper uh very cool
0: ideas yeah. <laughs>
1: um, I think there was a period of time where I wanted to be a doctor. Um, I think uh, a period of time where I wanted to be uh, various uh, cartoon characters. <laughs> mm-hmm. I guess it depends upon the age uh, you're talking about, but uh, yeah. ambitious. But I, uh, yeah, I never really knew. <laughs> and to be quite honest, it's one of those things that uh, I, I think I still don't know. <laughs> I mean, uh, <laughs> it, uh, it keeps changing often enough and, you know, in that sense, you know, I'm a bit like a, a cat. I've had quite a few lives already, and I'm sure I'm going to have a few more. So,
0: Yeah, that's, that sounds inspiring, like an inspiring way to live. Hey, and so when did you discover about yourself that you were good at tech stuff and computer science?
1: Um, I think it took quite a while. Uh I you know, I was pretty clueless when I was young. I was around uh computers quite a lot, uh, just because my uh, mom was a C programmer and my dad was a uh, telecommunications hardware uh, engineer. But, uh, you know, so I grew up with computers uh, in the house back with the old 300-baud modem and, uh, you know, <laughs> green uh, screens and, and everything. But, um, you know, but it, it was just a hobby, you know. I mean, it was just sort of something for fun. You know, I, I, I dialed into my parents' work, machines to play video games and things like that. So, I mean, I never really understood it as anything more than just uh, recreation you know, I learned how to program with uh, Logo and GW Basic uh, early on. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I was really lucky, of course, to be in that environment. But, of course, you know, I, I wanted to basically be anything that my parents weren't. <laughs> and like given an astronaut. That they, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, I, it actually really, for, for the longest time, never occurred to me <laughs> that I actually wanted to do anything with, uh, with computers, you know, I was in uh, high school. Uh, my big passion at that time was actually music. I was a, a classical oboe player <laughs> mm. uh, of all things. I, uh, you have applied.
0: had many lives already. You're right.
1: Yeah, yeah. I applied to uh, to music school actually on the oboe at University of Florida. Uh, I got in uh, to their program, um, but I sort of also decided at the same time that uh, it's highly competitive being an oboe player, and it's also uh, you don't have that many in an orchestra, and uh, <laughs> all the good ones tend to be in the same or- all the orchestras. So uh, you know, I just figured uh, perhaps I could also try some other things. Um, my parents, of course, told me, well, you know, you have to be either a doctor or a lawyer. <laughs> and uh, well, I knew I didn't want to be a lawyer. So I uh, enrolled for my bachelor's at University of Miami as a pre-med. Mm. So I did my uh, bachelor's degree uh, in uh, biology. Uh, I also had a minor of chemistry. At a certain point, uh, I was taking uh, introductory level core courses uh, in computer science. And I realized at a certain point that I could add computer science as a double major. And, you know, I just figured that would be kind of a fun thing to do. So, uh, you know, so I did. And, uh, you know, of course, uh, at that time, I didn't really know what direction to go in. But if you combine biology and computer science, what do you get? Well, bioinformatics. So uh, I worked um, on a molecular modeling project uh, for my uh, senior thesis. And I also, when I graduated, I, well, I also did a summer internship also at a, uh, a proteonomics uh, company. And then when I graduated with my bachelor's, I actually went to work on the Human Genome Project at MIT. <laughs> and it was very interesting because I was there between uh, basically 2000, 2001. And it was a- at that moment when there was the b- uh, big genome race between Solera Genomics and the public effort. And of course, I was I was on the I was on the public effort. So it was a really fascinating time uh, to be there. And I was actually part of that initial publication uh, in Nature of the initial sequencing of the the human genome. Wow. Uh, Of course. Yeah. It was super interesting. Nice timing. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it was really fascinating, of course. Uh, You know, at that time, I mean, we had entire, you know, these these huge rooms that were filled with these uh, genomic sequencing machines, you know, and and essentially, I mean, it took, you know, (laughs) easily, you know, a year, you know, to, to sequence a human genome, which of course is now it's all the more remarkable that uh, companies like 23 and me <laughs> can do, uh, do you know, sequence uh, individual genomes uh, so quickly and so cheaply. But uh, of course, back in those days, uh, you know, we used to make jokes about uh, playing, uh, playing soccer in the rooms with the uh, genome sequencing machines. So uh,
0: yeah. yeah was, Everything was, was new and fresh. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So it was, it was a fun time to be there, but I also hey. realized at a place like MIT that uh, you kind of needed to go to grad school to uh, get ahead. So that was sort of when I decided to go back to school to do a proper uh, master's in computer
0: science. And then if we jump ahead, you became the co-founder of Radically Open Security, which in the biotechs I said, it's the world's first nonprofit computer security consultancy company. But can you explain people what that actually means? Because I think a lot of people will miss the meaning of that.
1: Sure. So uh, we are a social enterprise in the computer security space uh, that um, donates its profits to charity. So uh, what that means is uh, we don't donate just 10% or 20% or 50%, but we literally donate all of our profits. Uh, People would wonder, well, how does that work? Well, the way that it works is uh, we uh, are paid by our customers and we also pay our staff members. So when we talk about uh, profit, (laughs) profit is basically the part that is left over uh, after after we've been paid and after everyone else has been paid. So, um,
0: basically, um, so you give away all of the profits, you keep what you need for the company, for the staff. And do you then make a distinction between what type of profits? I mean, is it all tech related or computer security related or not at all?
1: So uh, we give our profits to a internet-related charity that is called the NLNet Foundation. Hmm. And NLNet supports uh, open source digital rights projects and anything for a better internet. So they support projects like uh, GNU, EFF, Tor, Jitsi, DNSSEC, WireGuard, um, you know, basically projects like that. Also academic research projects, uh, those kinds of things. And so far uh, in the almost seven years of our company's existence, uh, we have donated over a half a million euros.
0: That's impressive. That's impressive. And if we talk about this um, topic of computer security and we talk about the future in this podcast, I think there's so much to say, but what do you see as the main thing that you would like to see solved or the main issue regarding computer security?
1: Well, um, I think that... There's a number of different ways that uh, that we can approach things. Um, I think that people are becoming a bit more aware. I mean, certainly the newer generations uh, are a bit more computer savvy than uh, previous ones. Of course, uh, education uh, of consumers about uh, what kinds of content they should create and how to adequately protect that is important. But at the same time, I don't believe that we can put the burden... Of uh, data protection on individual people, just because, uh, especially non technical people, they just don't have enough understanding to uh, really, uh, you know, even with uh, computer security professionals. It can already be tricky, <laughs> mm. you know, to get, uh, get to get to get people like us uh, to uh, protect uh, our own things uh, <laughs> appropriately and uh, not to take shortcuts and to make backups as often as we should. And we know better. <laughs> so um, I think really that the the burden for uh, computer security lies with uh, the, the IT departments of uh, the companies and organizations that we're dealing with. I think also that um, we need to. Look at ways of promoting more uh, open sourcing and uh, also open uh, data sharing of uh, different kinds of uh, security data, whether it's uh, threat intelligence, indicators of compromise, uh, other kinds of uh, signatures and uh, patterns uh, that would be uh Matched uh, for different kinds of, uh, you know, behavioral detection engines, and, and
0: so that it becomes more easy for other companies to have a blueprint to know what they should do. Is that would that be the cause, the reason? Well. The problem
1: is uh, a lot of security companies are commercially siloed, uh, and they're building all these uh, proprietary wheels uh, individually. And of course, they're doing this for business reasons, uh, because they think that they uh, need to have a closed product uh, in order to succeed financially, which of course isn't true. There's quite a number of uh, open source uh, companies that are doing quite well. But the problem, though, is that uh, the cybercrime ecosystem is uh, coherent. They, They collaborate. They work together. (laughs) They're streamlined. Uh, They're really a bunch of uh, interoperating, moving parts. And the problem is, if the defenders don't also equally collaborate and cooperate and share, you know, I mean, we don't need you know uh, thousands of, of small commercial wheels. I mean, we just we need a far smaller number of large you know, open source wheels that we can collaborate on and, and really, you know, build some really, really great wheels. If, if we don't stop letting uh, business models get in the way of our working together, it's going to be re- really, really difficult uh, for us to be able to defend ourselves.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So co- cooperation, even between different companies, people with different knowledge, that is going to be key, you think, even more than now?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you think about uh, antivirus, uh, antivirus engines by themselves are utterly worthless <laughs> because uh, an antivirus engine does nothing more than apply pattern matching to, uh, you know, files uh, that it happens to see or other patterns that might be in, in memory or perhaps behavioral uh, analysis or these kinds of things. Um, without these signatures, there's nothing to match to. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the most important thing about antivirus and similar monitoring solutions is having an updated set of signatures. But the problem though, is that the majority of antivirus engines for their business model, they give the engine away for free, but they sell this, uh, you know, access to the stream of signatures. Now, yeah. the problem with this is it's kind of like, you know, having the, uh, you know, the, the vaccine and withholding to give it to people <laughs> unless they pay you. Uh, there are so many people who could benefit from this protection, uh, you know, and uh, but but they don't have it just quite simply because they don't want to or otherwise can't afford to be able to pay these particular companies. Of course, there are a couple uh, antivirus companies that give away their products for free, but, uh, they take a different tack and basically, um, well, conducting surveillance on your machine and then selling that data to marketers. And I'm not entirely convinced that's a, a better way of doing it. Uh, so, you know, I think, you know, if we could come up with uh, service-based uh, companies that could build these kinds of detection engines and also give the signatures away for free, I'm pretty sure they would get enough goodwill back <laughs> to be able to sell sufficient uh, services to fund this uh, research in the first place. Uh, certainly, you can sell incident response services and things where you can be put into uh, contact with this kind of malware that you can reverse. Uh, But, you know, most companies just due to being really conservative, you know, won't consider these kinds of progressive business models. But this is really directly in conflict with uh, people's abilities to protect themselves.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because I'm recalling a conversation I had with colleague Futuritz who said um, that a lot of the politicians that we have, and this goes for many governments, are simply not expertised enough in tech issues like this. And so they underestimate what is needed. And I kind of hear you say the same about companies. Like they, you know, people don't really know what they might do best in order to defend themselves better, is that what I hear you say?
1: Oh, uh, well, I just think that uh, security companies uh, should be more focused on actually building great products and services that, uh, you know, can... Uh, can be used to actually protect, you know, whether it's companies or also private individuals, as opposed to just being focused on playing the uh, capital scale exit game uh, yeah. of uh, Silicon Valley and, uh,
0: and keeping getting acquired. And it, keeping it unique uh, and, and equal to access. Yeah. Because the
1: focus, I think, in a lot of times is just uh, in the wrong place.
0: Very interesting. And you also said a couple of things about your own company. The, the fact that you've decided to give away all of the profits already says that you're perhaps different in your thinking than a lot of entrepreneurs are. Uh, and if I look at the awards and prizes that you won, I'm not sure if you're going to like this, but um, you know, you were mentioned one of the 400 most successful women in the Netherlands, uh, one of the 50 most inspiring women in tech, uh, the most innovative IT leader. I like that one. Um, one of the most nine uh, innovative women in the European Union. Maybe you become shy if I just mentioned this, but but, what do you think is so innovative about the way you lead your company? If you were the jury now, about you. Right. Look, all of
1: these awards have very little to do with me. Uh, they instead rather are uh, giving some legitimacy to the ideas that I've been spending a lot of time on. Hmm the the part that I think is different. And the part that all of these different awards are really recognizing are, first of all, the concept of bringing more openness and transparency into uh, the workflow of commercial companies, like I do with Radically Open Security. Yeah. Um, You know, we invite customers into our chat rooms to actually observe our ethical hackers uh, working, which is very, very different uh, from the majority of uh, commercial security companies out there that operate as black boxes and just give a report and an invoice at the end end we also of course we also have a report and an invoice but we also uh you know the entire time have a really tight feedback loops uh with the customer, where we're you know constantly conveying exactly what we're doing from moment to moment. You know we're open for all kinds of questions. You know and security is a process. It's a mindset. It's not just a set of pen, a patches that you uh, receive in a pen test report. So you know the more you can actually include the customer in the process, the better they, equipped they will be to manage properly manage their own security when you're gone. Of course, it turns out this is also good value for money, and as a result, our company has grown largely successful uh, based upon this openness and transparency. Also, uh, certainly these ideals and also our not-for-profit business model has attracted very good idealistic hackers. As a result, we have attracted customers of the likes of uh, Google, Mozilla, uh, the Open Tech Fund in the States, but also the Wikimedia Foundation, but also in the Netherlands, uh, you know, all kinds of, you know, we, we te- pen-tested the uh, Corona melder <laughs> for the Dutch Ministry of Health, also for the European Commission. We've tested other national uh, COVID uh, contact tracing apps, like for Poland and Italy and uh, Singapore, also the Google Apple uh, Exposure Notification API and the European uh, Interoperability Interface, EFGS. We've also tested uh, for the EU, EU Uh, But also, you know, banks, insurance companies, telcos, hosting providers, uh, you know, universities, uh, healthcare institutions, but also, uh, you know, uh, lots of SMEs, cheaper work that we do for uh, startups, and also not-for-profit work that we do on a zero-margin
0: basis for nonprofits, NGOs, and civil society. So So one of of the ideas, then, is, is really this open approach uh, right? The, the, the ideas that you were awarded for, showing yeah. transparency, being open,
1: and that's apparently
0: working. That's,
1: well, that's half of it. That's half of it. The other half of it is the not-for-profit business model.
0: Because
1: hmm. as soon as you say not-for-profit business, people just look at you funny. <laughs> yeah. You know, because it's not a concept that people are used to hearing. <laughs> I mean, most people think, oh, not-for-profit that's an NGO, you know, or or something like that, you know, implying that you're somehow dependent on subsidies or donations uh, for your existence. You know, there's also, of course, social enterprises, but social enterprises are also extremely tied up with investments. Uh, and if you go to also the majority of, uh, impact incubators, uh, it's also constantly, you know, they're constantly busy with impact investors and, you know, there's also plenty of impact exits, uh, that happen, you know, B corporations getting sold to Unilever and, uh, these kinds of things. Um, you know, th- there's a number of problems and because of that kind of commercial, uh, impact you know, impulse that has kind of worked its way into the social enterprise ecosystem. Social enterprise is not entirely getting us as far as we need to go. Mm-hmm. We we can go one step further and think about how can we completely separate profit motive from the operational vehicle of business, <laughs> you know, and essentially I've uh, read a lot of um, From uh, economists uh, that belong to the so-called post-growth economics movement, economists Mm -hmm. like Tim Jackson and uh, Kate Rayworth, but also others like Douglas Rushkoff and and Muhammad Yunus, and uh, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a number, and they have these really great ideas. Uh, of course, they're macroeconomic ideas, but a lot of them translate very well also into uh, entrepreneurship and business. And they ask really fundamental questions like is growth good? Yeah. You know, and 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 we take it for granted that that growth is always a positive thing, but uh, you know, but but you know, if you look at, uh, for example, GDP uh, with national economies, uh, you know, it, more growth is not always better. It puts pressure on our environment and also pressure on our planet. But the problem is, though, we're sucked into the system where there is so much financial extraction extraction happening from our companies, that the economy needs to continue growing just to maintain a steady state of welfare.
0: Yeah. It reminds me of one of the conversations we recently had for the podcast where Marike Ijskoot, who is um, uh, involved in fair fashion, and she does a lot of consultancy with companies. And and one of the questions that she always asks is, is your product really necessary? (laughs) Because otherwise you you should not start this company. Exactly. Exactly.
1: Yeah. yeah. And if, and the thing is, if
0: you get rid of the profit
1: motive, I mean, basically by creating non extractive companies, then really the only purpose left is uh, positive impact. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that really influences the entire culture of your company in, in the sense that, uh, you know, both the, the global vision as well as the everyday tiny operational decisions are all pointed in that same direction of impact you know yeah. and and it it yeah it, it just really makes a difference so i mean this is really what i've been spending a whole lot of time on trying to translate these post growth ideas from the economists down one abstraction layer into uh the entrepreneurship level and uh 2 years ago i created a post growth uh entrepreneurship incubator that i call nonprofit ventures and we've been organizing uh workshops events presentations, classes. We actually organized a, a, a pilot class at the Free University of Amsterdam and uh, post-growth entrepreneurship is now worth six ECTS points, uh, in the business school at the, huh. uh, Free University, which is super cool. Um, but we also, uh, you know, uh, have been working with incubators, also Nonprofit Ventures has uh, hosted so far a startup boot bootcamp. Uh, before the COVID lockdown, uh, it was a one-week uh, physical program on the Dutch island of Uh, mm. uh And also, uh, just recently, actually, we just finished up with a 10-week uh, incubation program with a cohort of 12 startups that all are trying to basically emulate the business model that I've been <laughs> working on with open security. In other words, trying to build non-extractive companies, you know, companies that either fully reinvest these profits into social missions or they cross-subsidize some kind of activistic activity, artistic activity, spiritual activity, creative activity, you know, just something that, uh, you know, or or, or otherwise that would donate these profits uh, to a separate charity.
0: Very inspiring. So I have, we're we're nearing the end um, of this podcast episode, but I have two more questions, I guess. One is, and I know it's a very personal and very generalized question, but I find it very cool that you, as a woman, are so on top of this tech world. So if I hear you talk about the free university, do tell me that you have more and more women in class.
1: Um, Well... You know, it depends on which department you're talking about. I mean, uh, in computer science, of course, uh, there's always been more men <laughs> than women. And back when I was an assistant professor of computer science at the Free University, I uh, taught uh, computer operating systems. I also gave a number of lectures from time to time in computer security. And yeah, it was mostly men um, you know except for but it depends on the country uh, some asian countries uh whether it's china or indonesia tend to have uh, higher percentages uh, of women but yeah the netherlands is uh you know it's just not an obvious thing for most women to go into uh, tech of course there's a number of uh, groups out there that are promoting uh, you know <laughs> women in tech and that are highlighting uh
0: you know, role models. <laughs> yeah, um, we'll we'll share the link so that people can find you, and I'll send my daughter to your classes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, just as a as a last question, uh, you were already talking about this beautiful idea of post post growth um, movement and how to kind of translate that to corporates also, so not just the economy but also a successful business. Um, what would be your hope for the future of work or companies? What what would you really try to see evolve?
1: My hope is that uh, a discourse will start to happen in which people start asking the questions, uh, are exponential curves <laughs> in startups? Is this a desirable thing? Hmm. Uh, you know, Do we really need investors to be able to start Uh, a company, or is it perhaps better to uh, bootstrap uh, the companies ourselves? And also to ask, you know, what are the financial conflicts of interest uh, in the startup ecosystem in the sense of um, incubators (laughs) uh, having actually a conflict of interest between what they're teaching? (laughs) You know, I mean, they're sort of Functioning as a teaching institution, however, they're also taking equity in their startups. Mm-hmm. And the problem, though, is if you then go to one of these incubators and you say, "Hey, I'd like to talk about a new form of social entrepreneurship where we're, uh, you know, bootstrapping rather than working with uh, investors," uh, a number of uh, incubators get really well offended by this, mm-hmm. partly because this teaching, you know, of a new form of social entrepreneurship is in direct conflict. With their business model <laughs> not yeah. enough people are talking about this it's the same thing also with large business schools they have endowments uh, that they're receiving from people who are not that interested in having the status quo change it's mm-hmm. a it's a typical case of follow the money <laughs> and yeah. very very few people are talking about this investment is getting completely overhyped. And, you know, we have to acknowledge the fact that those with the most money have the loudest voices. It's the investors themselves that are making so much noise and and hyping investment. But, you know, we need to build a startup ecosystem that is built for founders and that's built for society (laughs) rather than that is just built to help uh, investors uh, multiply their ROI.
0: That's a beautiful hope. I I do hope that it will become reality. I can see how that would really, really affect what we do and how we do it. Thank you so much for being here, Melanie. You're welcome. Thank you for for inviting me. And for all of you listeners, uh, thanks so much for listening. If you found this story as inspiring as I did, then please do share it with your own network because we need more future-proof leaders and organizations. And a nice or five-star review makes us much easier to find for new listeners so thank you for uh, writing that in your favorite app or the itunes app hope to meet you again next time bye